From thereabouts, I'm Angus Morton, and this is Outspoken. It's hot and sticky. The sun has just set, leaving the sky a cool blue struck with a fading orange. The sound of insects, once imperceptible, now roar like a jet engine from the dense jungle. Two boys, maybe five or six years old, wearing school bags, approach a typical house in a rural town outside Ho Chi Minh City. The older of the two opens the front door, and they enter through a ray of tungsten light that casts their shadow onto the front step. Inside the house, the younger of the two throws down his school bag damp with sweat from an afternoon spent with friends in the street running and climbing and competing, and calls out to his mother. No answer. His father. No answer. Whatever. They'll be back for dinner, he shrugs. With the sky now completely dark and the house silent, the front door quietly opens once again. This time, it's the boy's father whose shadow is cast on the front step by the tungsten light. Leaping up, the boys rush to meet him. However, something is up. His usually jovial demeanour is stern and serious. Without a word, the boy's father motions to the pair to follow him, putting a finger to his lips. With a sideways glance at each other, the boys follow their father as he leads them out of the house through the back door. Darting and stopping and checking and darting again, they move through the thick forest and dense scrub as the boys stumble behind their father. The low rumble of a diesel motor can be heard, but no light can be seen. Through the trees comes a figure moving urgently towards the boys. This time, it's their mother. She scoops them both, kissing them on the head, and pulls them through the scrub to the edge of the river, where a small fishing boat waits. The boys climb in and she whispers to stay down. The boys do as they're told, taking up position on top of an abundance of fruit that seems to fill the entire boat. The faint thud of the prop engaging can be felt through the floor as the boat breaks from the shore. Gently the boat rocks in the water as it makes its way out into the night. After what seems like hours, but could have only been minutes, a faint beam of light passes overhead. They each hold their breath and wait. Nothing. The last time their parents whisked them away in the night, a beam of light just like that was followed by gunshots and lots of yelling. The further they get, the more relaxed their parents seem. The boys sit up, hearts racing with excitement. They look out to inky black ocean in every direction. They're at sea. On the horizon, lightning can be seen from a distant storm. And, you know, as my brother and I was over looking over the side of the boat, and all we could see was like wool of of, of seawater, you know, black seawater. And suddenly it was like stars. And it was like, whoa, the boat was up and down, up and down, you know, that, and that, my, that memory was so vivid. It was like black water. I remember my dad was saying, just get down, stay low, you know, that kind of thing, time get washed out. And we, we, you know, we survived that storm. And, and the next day it was like beautiful blue sky. And then my mum dive in, swimming. It was like, it was really beautiful. Kwok and his family spent three days at sea as they fled Vietnam, bound for Malaysia. It was their third attempt at escaping the oppressive post-war communist regime. The first time, they missed the boat their auntie and uncle had prepared. The second, they were fired upon by the Vietnamese Navy and forced to return home. On the third attempt, 
they would successfully reach Malaysia and declare refugee status upon arrival. Hundreds of thousands of refugees fled Vietnam during those years, many, like Kwok's family, by boat, and over 200,000 of those perished in the process. This journey would mark a new beginning for the young Kwok fam, the kid who would become the man behind the eponymous cycling shoe company making waves around the world for a high fashion approach to functional footwear. I was born in south of Vietnam, uh, a small town river uh, town called Mi Thor. It's like an hour drive from Ho Chi Minh City. And growing up, you know, there was during wartime and we didn't have much like most family. It was that time everyone was surviving. But, um, you know, one of the thing, the main thing, I think, remember my dad told me the, re- the main reason why he got out and got us out is to give us better opportunity, but also the fact is it wasn't safe at all. You know, everyone was fearful what because it's communist rule. They can do anything they want to you. That's the reason why we got out. And we managed to just go straight to Malaysia. Uh, at that time, we knew that Malaysia had the refugee camp and et cetera. And we arrived there. They, they put us on a refugee island where all the other um, Vietnamese people are. The island Kwok is referring to is Bidong, off the coast of Malaysia. Just one square kilometre in area, Bidong served as refugee island from 1978 to 2005 and saw over 250,000 Vietnamese refugees pass its shores post-war. This island would become home for Kwok and his family for the coming three years as they waited for asylum in the UK. Tropical island, you know, my, we didn't care, we didn't know much, you know, I was like five years old, can you know, all you care about was like swimming the these beautiful beaches and climbing fruit trees and getting bitten by ants. It was a paradise. The island, it wasn't big. Uh, you can trek it or across it in, in three or four hours, one side to the other. So, you know, every day we would just explore an island, swim in, learn how to fish, how to hunt. We hunt for crabs and hunt for octopus and that kind of thing. And it was like, it was just exploring. It's a bit, I don't know how I would say, like, a bit of like Lord of the Flies kind of thing. But of course, there was adults around and the whole system around. But yeah, it was an experience. We applied for, you know, asylum to the UK. And finally, we got accepted and uh, we flew British Airway into, into London. Flight on British Airways is enough of a culture shock for anybody. But imagine arriving in gloomy London after living on a vibrant tropical island. I remember landing in UK, I just cry refusedly because I miss my grandma so much. You know, my grandma was too old, she couldn't join us uh, on the boat and that. But I just cried, cried, cried so much. But you know, like when you grow in a hot country, you're most of the time you're outdoors, running around. But when I got to the UK, I didn't know, we couldn't speak a word of English. I was just excited to go out, you know, explore and join in with football games and playing with other kids. And like, I was looking out the window because in the UK it was just cold and just waiting for the, the sun to rise and you can and it's all seeing the kids in the playground so you can run out and join in with them. Just volunteer when there's an odd number kind of thing. Kwok and his family wound up being placed in Peckham, a small district south of London. Peckham was predominantly quite a you know, poor black area. After a year, we moved to like Bermondsey, which is like, completely the other side of the spectrum. It's like predominantly white, like a lot of you know, NF marches. The NF being the National Front, a far-right fascist political party in the UK. But it was, um, 
I, I, I don't know. I wasn't aware. You know, I was cool in name, but you know, I, 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 you get upset. Um, yeah, it's a good question. I, looking back now, how do I react to that kind of thing? Um, I got into fights because of it. It was happened so much where you got you kind of get used to it, and then you just got used to doing what you want to do, like playing, you know, going to school, and joining your mates. But you know, it was happening all the time, and at the same time, it was racist. But I wanted to join that group because I wanted to fit in. So, and and I was like, it's kind of a weird thing. You want to be belong to the group that doesn't want you. Um, what is that? As we talk, Quok seems to be processing memories he hasn't touched on since the time they were formed as a kid. I was embarrassed a little bit my name, and you know, I was like, of course, there was racism, etc. And I changed my name to Michael just simply because it's easier, you know that. And I, I did that until like year nine, from like you know, from year seven, year nine, and, I, and after year nine, I realized it's kind of like stupid. I mean, like, what are you doing, Quark? It's like your mother gave you his name. You should be really proud of it. His name, you know. It was like that. It was like I don't know. Uh, yeah, it was just trying to survive or something, you know. Why are you doing? You know, why, why, why was there to be ashamed of? But that for the for the last, you know, that three years or two years. It's, it was like I I didn't friend with uh, like any I, I most of all my friends are white kind of thing because I just want to fit in. To be honest, people don't really care. <laughs> you realize like whatever they just think it's so weird of me to change my name. I call it Michael doesn't even suit you. What are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> yeah. As a little kid just wanting to blend in and make friends, it made perfect sense that Quok changed his name to one that wouldn't invite questions and scrutiny. But even as that little kid. Quok realized that doing so came with unexpected consequences. I was one of the person who, who got along with everybody. You know, I was with the boffins, the smart kids, and I was with the naughty kids smoking joints at the back of the school. And one thing I knew, that I, I didn't want to get in trouble. I didn't want to mix too heavily with the bad crowds. You know, focus on my schoolwork and et cetera. Just really appreciating you know, where we are, where we came from kind of thing. Don't kind of ruin it. It wasn't just Quok who had been thrust into this entirely new world. His whole family embarked on a journey of self-discovery. My dad has to, you know, like take up schooling, you know, evening class to be a social worker, etc. My mum, you know, my dad, I think worked in the bread factory as well. My mum's a seamstress, you know, like uh, making clothes for like Dorothy Perkins, that kind of thing. Just putting meat on the table, so to speak. I think the moment, really turning point for me, was when I was age of 14. I was in fashion textile class, and my teacher asked, you know, it's like, here's a project, make a dress, you know, just just make something, do something. And what I did is got a piece of cotton fabric, just a white piece of cotton fabric, and then we had to, you know, to create like dye it, batik it, and then you know I visit John Lewis to buy a paper pattern. That time they had like fabric, etc. As well, and I buy a paper pattern and I cut myself the most simple thing, the A-line dress, just really, really simple, beautiful sleeveless dress, zippers at the back of the neck, and it was dressed down to the knee. And I, you know I've used that pattern to cut the dress. And my mum's a seamstress, you know, helped me, but like, teach me how to install the zipper. It was quite a tricky thing to own the zipper as a 14 year And I managed to do it. You know, I make sure that I did that correctly. I make sure that all the sleeves, the hem, the edge was really beautifully turned over. I put it on a mannequin. And I was like, wow, this is beautiful. I absolutely loved it. And, and from then on, I actually dedicated myself 
into anything that was like creative and at the same time doing sport and I realized that was who I am. It was like sports and design. There is an immense bravery in following a passion at an age where, let's be honest, if you were to express your love for making dresses, you're probably going to attract some unwanted attention on the playground. If he were to receive any ridicule though, it clearly didn't register as he fails to bring it up in our conversation. Which perhaps has something to do with the fact that around the same time, Quok began to realize the quickest way to winning over people's affection and gain their acceptance was to smoke them at sport. He started with running. You know, I remember, I don't know what it was, but our first cross-country lesson, and it was my friend, his, his kid, his name is Danny, and he was really good. We ran and he beat me. And uh, it was headed, it beat me by, you know, a couple hundred meters. I was like, how can I beat this guy? It was like training, running nonstop. And, you know, the second lesson, like a week later, I was like catching up to really close to him. And the next after that, I was like, you know, beating him. And by the end of the term, where I was like, I was lapping a lot of people and I was lapping him. And, uh, you know, he wasn't, you know, he was, he was my friend. I was like, I wasn't, he wasn't, I was like, how can I, just how can I improve myself? I couldn't get myself into football team. You know, I tried so hard. I remember in the training ground, I was like running off the ball when my shoe fell off and running, I was trying to show it to my teacher. I was like really determined and I didn't get selected. And, but I trained, I trained. I got myself football in the back of the park, kicking against the wall and everything. And I trained to the point where I was like, year nine, I made the team. And by year 10, I was like the captain of my team. And then by my A-level, you know, I was a captain and I got the team into, you know, winning the, the South London Championship for my team. His determination and dedication on the pitch paid off. Being successful at soccer or football or European football or whatever you want to call it had granted him the acceptance within the community he had so long desired. And now it was time to pay it forward. It started when I started winning things like athletics team. You know, once you win, you win the medal. And in the assembly, the principal, you know, say announce how it is. And it was that giving my self-esteem and confidence, etc. Um, and people, of course, naturally much, much more polite and nicer to you. But they see you in different light as well. You know, the teachers say, I don't know if more respect or, and your peers is, um, you know, naturally teach you different. And going through that, I realized as well, like when I got there being the captain, I didn't forget the kids who was on the bench trying to get onto the team because I was there before. As passionately as Quark applied himself at sport, he equally dedicated himself in the field of textiles. When I threw myself into art and design, fashion textile, my teachers saw something in me. And they, they and the school as well, I was so grateful. They supported me, uh, encouraged me to do more. And you know, I was just I was just practicing every single discipline. And I was literally building up my portfolio and I was staying in school until 11 o'clock at night. The security guard had to go around to the school, make sure no other kids is there, doing all the things. I had to throw me out. And I got to the point where I told my, the security guard, look, you know, I will leave. At, I'm going to be here. I'm going to leave at 11. And my teacher said, you have to get like, have you heard of Central Martin? So if you haven't heard of Central St. Martin's, like I hadn't, then ask the first friend you have who cares in the slightest about art or fashion, if they have, and they'll probably glance you up and down with a look that simultaneously says, obviously, and clearly you haven't. 
that was like the best art school at the time. No. And then he, they told me that, and I just, we applied for it. And from then on, we just worked together to build my portfolio. I was starting to do some crazy dress from that first A-line dress to this amazing cactus dress where I was like, I was building this sculpture wireframe to make this volume and then applying and making my own fabric. It was like, and I, I was carrying this dress to the interview on the, on the underground, on the tubes, a massive dress. It was like inside this bin line. I was like, we didn't want to have this crazy dress. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, it worked and I got, I, got, I got in and I got in women's wear. Why did I pick women's wear? I don't know, because of that dress, I suppose. They didn't teach you, they was teaching to explore your mind, it's to be an, an artist almost. You know, it was like the peers before me, it was Alexander McQueen and Stella McCartney, and it was like John Galliano, it was like all these great names. And with that name, it attracts really hungry people to the course. We got so many people, international students. And everyone wants to be the best thing. Can you imagine being in that environment and everyone wants to be the best? You have to step up your game. Looking back now, is it taught me to think completely different. It taught me to question every single thing. It taught me to like break down your ideas, break down everything. There's no there's no right or wrong to the way to do things. And yeah, question status quo, you know. Just experiment. You're here to experiment, you're here to like free your mind and, and that's what's amazing. That's different from like Parsons, like in America, you know, like American style is a lot more commercialized and etc. You have to make things that's more commercial or viable. But Samata was very different. It was like, no, you're an artist, think outside the box. So looking about now, where where I got myself to now is like when we make up shoes, we start from scratch from the last. The last is the mold of shoes. And we just start from scratch from there. What's the idea behind this product? You know, and you know, just question every single thing. If something is inefficient, you have to fix it. You have to solve a problem. You have to go. Just don't just follow what the factory tells you. This is the way. Of course, you have to be mindful. The freedom freed Quok to push the boundaries when it came to design, but it also led to unforeseen obstacles. When I joined St. Martin, I did a lot of experimentation and closer towards the end, I realized my portfolio was quite masculine. I was dressing women in beautiful suits and things, but suits, but, you know, empowering women, like beautiful, sh powerful shoulders or exposing the hips and things like that, but, you know, really sexy and elegant, but empowering women at the same time. And after that, you know, when we, I graduated, it was all the project or commission I had from fashion houses. It's like, Quack, you like your your portfolio is like menswear. <laughs> and so I did a lot of menswear, you know, projects. And after a year of graduation, um, I we I launched a menswear label. It was a big learning curve. You know, Samata teach you all the freedom to be to think. And then in the real world, it was like, okay, now you got marketing, you got sales, you got PR, you got manufacturing, you got you know, all this thing, you got about cash flow, you know, you <laughs> like they didn't teach you that. So literally, you have to learn from scratch. It was a massive learning curve. And, you know, looking back now, you know, after four years, we closed down the business. We tried everything. We learned so much. We did trade shows and we made production errors. And, you know, we did great. We sell to an amazing shop. And, but I realized looking back that, you know, you need, you need production support. You need financial support. You need a whole PR team. And you need a whole sales team. You know, and here I was, completely new kid on the block, like thousands of other kids trying to, you know, trying to make it big. This is how it is. Every day was a, a problem you need to fix. You know, situation we have to resolve. And um, yeah, I when I when I closed down the label, it was really disheartening. I lost all my money. That's nothing to my name. 
And all I had left was, you know, six, seven boxes of sample clothing and production left over for my collections. And at that time, it's like, you know, it was a deep soul search and what do I want to do with myself? You know, I was like, okay, uh, what, what is true and what is not true? What is, what is true? What do you love? You know, I love fashion. Okay, fine. But that didn't work. Now, what I also love, I love shoes at the time. You know, I always want to make introduce shoes, but that's another whole scope that I didn't know. But I love shoes, footwear. And at the same time, what I love, I love cycling. You know, I was cycling everywhere, to and from meeting, during school, and I thought, okay, shoes and cycling. And, I, and then I start going to visit shops, seeing on the walls what kind of shoes they had, and, and it was nothing that I wanted to wear. You know, I wanted to wear something nice, I can go to meeting or to meet friends for dinner without needing to put on like sporty, racy shoes that all the shop was selling at the time. And I want something more understated, more classic, maybe potentially made of leather, something a bit more dressy. Quark wasn't the only one who thought cycling shoes lacked a little bit of style. Anyone else who didn't idolize Mario Cipollini would agree. So I thought, you know, with my little bit of background in fashion and manufacturing, I thought I'd give it a go. But I didn't know nothing about shoes. Knowledge wasn't all that Quok didn't have, but in his typical tenacious nature, Quok found a way to turn his situation around and grab everybody's attention at the same time. So I had this really simple ideas and I was like, okay, what? You don't have no money. Being in Arsenal, you know that East Street London, on the weekend, they had, you know, the weekend market. So, you know, I visit the office and say, look, how much is this store? It was like 90 pounds at the time for the store for the day. So it's 180 for the weekend. So I took a store. It was like one meter by two meter. They could rent you the store. And then, then you know, just sell whatever you have. And I had samples. So I bought hangers, uh, you know, from the pound shop. And just hanging out all the, the, the clothes left over. And I was like, okay, I don't want to hang around. You know, I was like, I want just straight cash. People, just, you know, people walking around with like, 20 pound, 30 pound, 10 pound, 15 pound. And I realized I really liked it. I really loved it. I was really good at it. You know, on a weekend, I was making like a thousand pounds on the store. I was in my element. And, you know, after a month, I had enough money. I was like, okay. I knew that Taiwan had a really strong connection to cycling, you know, from, you know, Giant and the whole industry was there. So with the money from the, the clothes I made, I bought a ticket to Taiwan. And from then on, I just literally Google and email like 20 to 30 different factories within China and Taiwan, like, you know, like shoe, handmade shoe manufacturers. And, you know, one reply from China didn't work out. But then one guy replied me from Taiwan, from Taichung, who was in the middle of Taiwan. And I called him up the next day. And a day after that, I, you know, I, took, I bought a ticket to Taichung and I showed him the product. And he said, uh, at that time, he was like trying to get customer from the, you know, from Europe. And he's like, okay, we can make this design for you. And we made the design simple. It's called the fixed model. And at that time, I was like, I was riding single speed fixed gear around town. It was toe case and strap. Where I was designing this model for that purpose. And uh, we made this model in five colors. After it finished, uh, like a month, whatever, packed my bag, went back home. And, and like, okay, sales. How do you do sales? I didn't know how to do sales. I just stone cold cool shops around. Okay, who's the best shops in London? Condor cycle, fine, Condor, cool them up. You know, I got, you know, this new design, I have these new shoes, would you like to see it? And that time Kyle was the head of the buying department, said, yeah, come in, sure, tomorrow 11. I come in with my bag, you know, on this little uh, 
where people ship to try the shoes, I laid it out to him. And it's like, whoa, that's really nice. I'll be looking for this. And from then on, he placed an order. You know, it's only 20 pairs, but I was like, so appreciate 20 pairs. And I called, you know, five other shops around London. And then, and then on, I sold another 20 to 15, 15 to 20 pairs to my friends. So my first order was like 120 pairs. I need more money. So I sold more clothes on the weekend again. Enough, another month, bought a ticket by Taiwan and say, look, and I, I, I was just like playing with, his, with him. Look, and he was expecting thousands of orders. Here's the orders, 120 pairs in these three colors. Can you make it, please? And he's like, oh. <laughs> and literally his hand was in there and his eyes it was just dropped. <laughs> I remember sitting there in front of the table and next to him, it's like, and I was just playing with him, please. Like, and then, you know, it got, I was just so great. He said, yeah, sure, well, we, we can do it. But you have to increase this order quark. You know, we made the shoes that time. I, you know, I, we sent it back, sent to our customer. They sold out and it just snowballed from then on. It was like, I went through back to the UK, sold some more clothes. Whilst the orders were small, they were growing steadily and the brand was garnering attention from the trendsetters in the UK cycling scene. But just when it started to kick off, the thing happened that happens to so many small companies who were just getting started out manufacturing in a foreign country. Yeah, you know, we, we did trade, after that we did trade show, we did uh, the cycle shows so big in the UK, it was at Earl's Court at that time. Once you grow, um, it was a shame, but our factory, they copy our design. You know, being in the industry, being in Taiwan, the whole big cycle industry, they copy our design and that was, that was a big lesson. It was like, it was unexpected, you know, like I was quite naive to it. I was like, why, I mean, this is just a simple design, why do you want to copy me? <laughs> We had to move out, and that was a big learning curve. Where finding partners is really important. Finding factory support, you know, someone who's willing to support. Because you know, for them, it's like they don't make any money until you give them thousands, thousands of orders and meeting all their minimums. And the minimums, you know, even quite low at that time was like 500 pair per colors. And each time you test a factory, it takes like six to nine months until you see actual product. You know, big learning curve is that when everyone, every factory won your order and everyone said, yeah, I can make it for you and everyone can make great sample. But the big pudding is like, when it comes to production, that's where they show their true colors and show their quality. So we move around various factory, you know, we moved to, we even moved to China as well. This factory is making for Jiro, making for Rafa. And, you know, we thought it was great for them, but I quickly realized and learned that it's not what they can do for other brands or what they can do for you. So when they make our shoes and you know, it was it was not the great quality and we sent out to the customer, it was like, it was just poor, you know, our QC and our destroyed product. And that, that factory, you have to be really careful, factory can bankrupt you doing something dodgy like that. And it almost did, you know, somehow, I don't know how I survived it, skin in my teeth, from the loans from my brother, you know, from friends to keep it going. You have to ask at this point, why keep going? Sure, the product is good, but how many times can you get through by the skin of your teeth before you decide that perhaps it's time to pack up the toys and go home? The reason why I kept going, because we, I saw the potential in the product. You know, it sells well and customer really appreciate it. Yeah, that's the main reason, because I still believe there's you know, huge potential in here. How do I keep on going? Like I said, it was like my brother's loan, putting his house on a line, you know, for the bank, whatever. It was just like, just to survive. Part of that survival was questioning the purpose of the very product they were selling. Urban cyclists shooting shoes. Urban cyclists don't need clip-ins. So I didn't realize that in a couple of years, like 
I was a slow learner, you can say. But uh, one day I remember someone, I was like, who need clip-ins? They just wear regular shoes, they wear Vans or Converse. You know, why did they, and I was like, that's, and I realized, shit, this is all my competition, it's Nike, Adidas, just running shoe. Uh, you know, people used to, after work, they'll go in the gym and after that they cycle home and that's their footwear, it was like just gym shoes. That's where we like, okay, we need to cater for more cyclists. But, you know, we never gave up on it. You know, I came from, I came from the fashion industry. I came from that. I still believe the huge potential in this market. And also, this is where the, the, the hub of the population are. So, I don't know how, what kind of, maybe I'm stubborn, but I tend not to give in to one thing. Is the first try it didn't work. Kwok acquiesced, expanding his range and catering to a more traditional market. And it's got to a point where, in 2016, we rebrand ourselves. Before it was like urban cycling shoes, leather, it was my whole name, Quok Fam. And 2016, we rebranded ourselves. We want to be more, uh, it's just Quok. And we want to cater for more cyclists. And we want to cater for road cycling. We want to cater for MTB to literally give what the cyclists want with the existing market already there. So we expanded, you know, and then we released the Night uh, Lace Up Shoes. And then we released the GT uh, in 2018. It was just like, adapting to the market, uh, seeing what's, you know, just being ahead of the curve. And that's, I think that's the thing with, with brand who copy you is like they can copy one product, but what's the next product? You know, what's your innovation? What's your drive behind this? What's your influence? What sort of key thing that keep you going is the first try didn't work. You have to find another solution to work. You know, it's like you're giving in. It's, like, it's too easy. It's always little tweaks, you know, little tweaks along the way that make something good. And, we continue, like, we got rid of leather and then we're using, you know, something that's vegan and synthetic and better price point and something that's more durable during the rain, etc. You know, it's little things that improve the, for your customer experience and product. When I started this brand, it was like, what I, I want the product to wear for myself. And I, I want to sell the product to people that, that, you know, can understand or appreciate my design. Or, and it was each, I realized it was 90% of the, this market was like people who don't race. And that's what I was, we was catering to. For me, when we rebrand, I was like, okay, it's not about just selling one shoe, trying to make money. It was it was much bigger picture. Why you do this, Quark? You know, why keep you on this? It was, you know, one of the things that I love about cycling is the freedom it gives me. And also the, the beautiful moment that you enjoy on the bike, you know, you know that, there's going to be a moment, you know where, but it's always going to be a moment, maybe on top of the climb or something, or maybe the golden hour, but it's something that's, and that's something I want to share. And how do I share that? You know, so I, I, one of my mission is like how to encourage more people riding a bicycle with our beautiful shoes by making the product more comfortable, making the product more, you know, more, more elegant and, and making the product non-distracting. And that, that was our mission to how to encourage more people to cycle the shoe. With an expanding range, a strong mission, and revitalized team, Quok the brand had solidified itself as a small but viable business. Now this would normally be where the story ends, but a global pandemic thrust Quok into the biggest sink or swim moment to date. COVID was tough for everybody, as you can imagine. You know, we had orders, the factories making that time, and the deal with the factory was like, you have to pay you know, certain deposit before they can release your product. And when COVID locked down, I was like, oh man, why am I gonna get, why am I gonna, I need more money to pay the factory to release the product? And I was like, uh, it was another learning curve. So I couldn't get any more loan from the bank. I was like, 
we had this, all these orders waiting for the customers, waiting for the shoes. And if anything, COVID saved our company. <laughs> and also the UK government you know, have this thing called the bounce back loan for a small company where it's just to help to, to stay alive. And we managed to get this loan from and pay us for our factory, release the product after the first delivery. I had to rebuild my team. I had to let go of all my team. And I was by myself again. Okay, what do you do now? It's like, just rebuild a team from scratch. You know, I met my team, Moni. She joined the team and I sold her the vision. We worked together. And then we just like, I don't know how it was. It was just happened all at the same time, Gus. It was like, the market was really good. People wanted to choose. You know, uh, people's getting outdoor, you know, the moment they can through the lockdown, whatever. And I was in a situation, I was in Taiwan at the time, that was not locked down. We managed to find the right team and keep on running. You know, it was really so important for us to keep on moving during lockdown because in Taiwan, you know, being in Taiwan is so crucial for developing brand. We were so close to our factory. We was in the same time zone that we can communicate and we can turn around our developments, turn around which much faster than if you were in the UK. So COVID, you know, being in the right situation, just it just everything just came out the right time because it saved us again for the third, fourth time, whatever. I lost count. It's anxiety-inducing listening to what is a pretty standard storyline for those who start a small brand and hope to make it solvent. So at this point, I had to ask once again. Why am I keep going? Maybe from childhood, maybe apart from that, you know, trying to catch up with Danny or trying to beat Danny. Just little elements that maybe, you know, my daughter come along and trying to leave her better behind. Um, you know, all this, and looking back there, I'm so privileged to have all this opportunity to make this decision every day. You know, not many people can, can do that. And I took the way the biggest part of that in, the, in that book was like, to be successful, to be, have anything achievement in your life, anything you want, you have to conquer your fears. And we still find ways to improve our product. Every single day, I question, is our product good, good enough? And maybe that's the reason why it kept me going, because at St. Martin, you know, I, I got a little bit arrogant. I thought, well, I'm fine. But in the end, I got like a 1-2 grade, not a 1-1. One, one. You know, like I didn't get a first, I got 1-2. And maybe that 1-2, that kept me going because I wasn't good enough. I got to the studio industry, but it was without no background. So I had to learn from scratch. I wasn't, I'm not good enough, I'm not trained. I'm not, you know, whatever. I have to just learn it, learn it, learn it. Yeah, maybe because I feel like maybe I wasn't good enough. It's that sentiment that has driven so many people in positions of disadvantage to do exceptional things. And Quok is no different. Now, Quok carries six models of shoes in multiple colorways and sells around the world. So what will be enough for Quok the brand and the human? You know, of course, you want your brand to be number one in the world. You know, and I question myself, what is number one? Number one sales or number one loved? And you will get haters along the way. What do we want? We want to have our own factory in the UK to give back society, to employ. There's no, the shoe manufacturing industry in the UK is pretty much died out. The only thing, there's only three factory left now, I know for sure, and they're all made for handmade shoes for, you know, Grenson's or John Lorber's for Edward Green. And this kind of factory don't, I mean, they make, they're set up to make that kind of specific shoes. There's no industry left. You know, what we do, we do injection. You know, we do carbon fiber. That's a completely different setup. So, you know, I love to have my own factory. 
uh, in the UK to give back. So making you making our brand number one, but not just by sale, but much more than that, you know? I spoke to one of the potential investors, he asked me, and I said to him, I want to open a factory. And he's like, are you crazy? Like, what brand shoe has our own factory? And when he said that, I'm really like, hmm, you know, you're not the right investor <laughs> for us. Being in the shoe industry for so long, I realized there's so much more, there's so much waste in a product. You know, there's two, over 200 pair of hand touch a pair of shoes before it goes inside a shoe box. And each time they make a mistake, that shoe can potentially go in the bin. What is true, we need to make our production more efficient. You can save so much cost by just like cutting down your waste on your product. You know, design a product better so that when it comes out, the injection, whatever the product is less defective. So you're saving costs there, you're not contributing, but also it's you saving costs as well. Like if you design tooling from the very beginning, expend, you know, spend money to develop this tool so great that the output is so much more efficient. You know, it's like just thinking like that. And it's like, oh man, if we have our own factory, we can be so much better than everybody else because we just questioned all the status quo. And that's where we are, just like bringing something back to the UK. As Kwok said, the shoe industry is a dying art in the UK. It's incredibly difficult to sustain your own factory there. So why is he so hell-bent on bringing his entire business back to England? They say home is where the heart is, and it's kind of true. But I had someone ask me, where am I? You know, like, I'm British. I consider myself British. You know, my skin color, my hair color is not the same, but I, most of my life so far, I grew up in the UK. You know, I so appreciate the whole education system, the opportunity that he gave me. So I'm British through and through. But if you ask me now, where am I? I'm international. You can say, you know, like, what is this where this island? I mean, this whole planet is like, everyone belongs to, this is who we are kind of thing. So I'm just like global citizens, you can say. I'm home where my, my heart is. And right now, my love is in Taiwan. My team, my amazing team is Taiwan. But if you're not comfortable yourself, you can never be home anywhere. You know, that's, that's, that's where I am at the moment. You know what Henry Ford said that, you know, mistake and failures is another opportunity to do something again more intelligently. So you, know, you can look at one way, you look, oh, this, how could this happen to me? Or you can look, what is this lesson teaching me? I make so many mistakes, like it's ridiculous. It's more than I had hot dinners, they say that in the UK. <laughs> but it's just how you look at things. You know, just it's a big opportunity along the way. And sometimes I look, not look for mistake, but I appreciate it and I say, what is this teaching me? And how can I do the better second time around? Yeah, I'll do it all again. You know, I'll do it again uh, more, more intelligently. <laughs> and I still have the hunger for now, guys. It's like after 12, 30, coming up to 13 years, and I, you know, just with the team involved where I'm now, I'm so much more motivated. I had a, a meeting with a friend yesterday, an investor friend. And they said, what do you finally want, Kwok? Do you want to get VC to buy you in? Or do you want to leave something more meaningful after? And I realized, okay, what, you know, I think I prefer this option B, leave something more meaningful, you know, like, yeah. Listening to Kwok's story through, it strikes me that for all the effort he put into fitting in and assimilating into the culture around him, at each step, Kwok couldn't help but stand out. Not because of his ethnicity or his name, not for a desire for attention, but because of his personality, creativity, and unwavering determination to excel. 
and perhaps partly as a consequence of escaping a communist regime where conformity precludes all else. Fashion and sport were outlets where Kwok was able to eclipse race, accent, skin colour and language. It was in sport and fashion where Kwok was able to be seen for who he really was, a talented, creative human being. He brings a perspective to apparel design that is exciting and refreshing. We'd like to think all stories of the underdog in sport are like Kwok's, but the reality is, they aren't. Seen as the great leveller, sport is supposed to be a safe space for any and all to come and express themselves, to be themselves. And yet, it is in sport that the individual is increasingly coming under attack from legislators and federations around the world. We need to talk about this. We need to think about what words like play, compete, game, training, or sport mean to us. Like, really think. We need to pay attention to what's happening in our states when it comes to who has access to sport. And we need to make our voices heard. Outspoken is a Thereabouts production produced and edited by Angus Morton and Abby Levine. Sound design and mix by Ben Cranell. Executive producers Isaac Carson, Angus Morton and Abby Levine. Music by Builders T. If you enjoy hanging out with us on the audio waves, come hang out with us on the internet waves. Head over to thereabouts.ghost.io to join our community, support our work, and join the chat on Discord. You can also get in touch with us via Instagram at Levine for Abby, at thatisgus for me, or at here or thereabouts for the thereabouts Instagram. If you enjoy listening to this, or honestly, even if you didn't enjoy listening to this, please consider throwing us a five-star review. Please makes a difference apparently all right thank you so much for listening i'm angus morton